I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Fantastic Beasts. The Secrets of Dumbledore. Let's do this thing. Memory is everything. Without it, we are blind. Without it, we leave the fate of our world to chance. I'm sorry to disturb you, Albus, but I've just received troubling news. Tell me, what is it? It's Grindelwald. The time is closed, my brothers and sisters. Our war with the Muggles begins today! The world as we know it is coming undone. If we're to defeat him, you'll have to trust me. Mr. Kowalski, we need you. I said I want an out and I want out. You do know I'm a witch, right? Dumbledore asked that I give you something, Jacob. Do you really intend to turn your back on your own kind? It was you who said we could reshape the world. Even if we make mistakes. You. We can try to make things right. This episode is an appraisal of what currently at the time of recording is a week after the release of film three in a trilogy. I'm going to proceed in a way that at least allows for more movies in this series, but for several reasons I will go into, I think we're done. And side note, folks, I wrote this yesterday, today, Warner Brothers announces that they're jamming on the brakes on this franchise. I mean, I hate to say I told you so, but I didn't even get the chance to say I told you so. That's how quick I told you so. Could be down to the fact that this film cost $200 million, and after about 10 days now, the box office is sitting at 193. Oof. So, if you're listening in the future, and it turns out they weren't done somehow, and Fantastic Beasts 4, The Trial of Newt, is making tepid box office in the year 2025, you'll know that they didn't learn from their mistakes. But from the looks of it, they did. Full spoilers for all three movies, by the way, but I don't recommend you see any of them. Sharon hasn't seen the third, so she will be finding out about the details for the first time, along with many of you. Since most of you aren't going to see this in the cinema. Three and a half years is a long time in movies, long enough for most potential sequels to go off the boil. It's actually a fairly tight window between installments. Doctor Strange 2 is about to hit cinemas this month, and the first film released about the same time as Fantastic Beasts 1 did, late 2016, circa the Trump administration, six years ago. It feels like The Last Jedi happened just the right amount of time after The Force Awakens, and yet those same two years felt like not enough time for the clearly rushed and troubled production of The Rise of Skywalker. The two previous Star Wars trilogies spanned six years each, not four. It was three years Empire, three years Jedi. And yet here we are looking at three and a half years for the entire worldview on Harry Potter to shift and change for a hell of a lot of people. For perspective, three years ago when we covered film two, The Crimes of Grindelwald, having not touched upon film one yet, Victoria remarked that Joe Rowling had done some turfy things online, and it was such early days into her madness that I had to ask Victoria to qualify and cite precedent so that we were all on the same page. 
Can you imagine me doing that now? Back then, one of the big things people were having a laugh at was her assertion that Hogwarts didn't have toilets for a long, long, long time, but the students got around that by squatting in the hallways, depositing a birthday cake-sized turd, and then just magicking it away to the lake for the mer people to enjoy, before one presumes activating the Wipe Arsicus spell. Because back then, bored out of her mind, she was just spending her time adding to Pottermore, answering questions no one ever asked. And around about that time, she was liking and retweeting stuff that was rather turfy. However, years have passed. Being a trans-excluding, radicalized feminist is now her online identity. It's also worthy of note that a lot of people pointed to weak writing in the first film as she took on sole scripting duties, discharging Steve Clovis, who had adapted six of her seven books into the Potter movies. The only one he didn't do was Order of the Phoenix, and that was still really good. Phoenix was adapted by Michael Goldenberg. Extremely well, considering how fucking enormous and dense and rambling that fifth book was. But somehow on Fantastic Beasts, the writing went from patchy on film one to downright comedically poor on film two. Clover's returned for three, for better or worse, but his skill was always in turning popular, twisty, and richly detailed kids' novels into something that felt right on the big screen. It was never in polishing turds for adults. Why Parsicus? Because that's the other thing that has seriously changed over recent years. A certain age group that grew up either being read the books or reading for themselves hit adulthood in the middle of the 2010s and rather than courting a new crowd of Generation Z kids, JK is still writing for her original audience, especially those deep into its lore. I would posit there is also a slice of the fandom which is the parents of those kids who read their book read the books to their children mm -hmm. and therefore are fondly nostalgic for the era when their kids would still sit and listen to them. Yeah, the oldies also like Harry Potter still. And it's harder to explain what she's a turf means to them. Mm. There are several face-palming ironies here, by the way. One is that these movies contravene and contradict that law in some often, for general audiences, unnoticeable ways, which would make some of her biggest fans furious, like Minerva McGonagall being an adult teacher in Hogwarts far too early, which I ranked as one of the least problematic aspects of film two. Another irony is that, and I will keep reiterating this throughout this episode, JK wrote kids for kids. That's what her Potter series is founded upon. And now the kid readers are grown up and she has to write adults for adults. The wildly careering tone of the Fantastic Beasts spin-off franchise does not sit well with mature adults. The third irony is that through her new and honed online identity as a powerfully influential bigot, the progressive kids of Gen Z fucking hate her. She has scorched the very roots of Potter's organic appeal, pissing poison into her own creative well. So now, when irrigation occurs, the plants come up shriveled and twisted and bear only the bitterest of fruit. She has left Warner Brothers in a never-ending series of difficult situations. Their investment is rotting on the vine, and yet the more they try to harvest, the worse the reputation of the brand gets. 
The development head of phone game Hogwarts Legacy, Troy Leavitt, left the project after news of his old channel praising Gamergate and decrying social justice activism came to light. Warner knew about his past, they just hoped nobody else would dig that deep. Leavitt also dismissed sexual misconduct complaints regarding media executive Nolan Bushnell and also John Lasseter, one of many contradictions illustrating how the 2014 Gamergate movement was never about ethics in game journalism. It was instead a well-organized harassment campaign utilizing a cultivated hatred of women among an overwhelmingly male and robotic following. Training grounds for 2016 as Brexit and Trump signaled the changeover from the information age to the misinformation age. Meanwhile, Jo was writing her mystery books about predatory trans women, her personal obsession, which actively ignores the vulnerability the overwhelming majority of trans folk endure in their place on the 21st century social hierarchy, well near the bottom. It takes a special kind of stubborn nincompoop, and that is being nice, to be told the very real statistics of violence inflicted upon a minority community, and still conclude that it's regular cisgender women who are the ones in real danger, not from the historically high likelihood of an abusive cisgender male partner, but from trans ladies, and always seemingly in bathrooms, which is where they lie in wait, hiding their horns from view. And because irony has settled itself quite glaringly into this sorry-ass franchise, it turns out that Ezra Miller, the gender-fluid actor that we were all really hoping would get some big breaks and be the precedent leading the way for future actors who don't conform to gender binaries, yeah, they're a scumbag. They have had four legal run-ins, and strangely in keeping with their refusal to be just one gender, two of them are crimes that I would immediately dismiss, being pulled over for a broken brake light in 2011 during a shoot for the perks of being a wallflower, and police finding 20 whole grams of marijuana in the car. Notably, if they were a black teenager, they would have spent several years in prison. Their other offense was earlier this year, posting a video threatening the Ku Klux Klan. This is the kind of crime we should hand out gift vouchers for, though if they were a black teenager, they would be dead. But their other two incidents were enough to make Warner Brothers delay release of the constantly delayed Flash movie by yet another year to 2023. Meanwhile, they're going to hide under some coats and hope that somehow everything will work out. A 2020 video of Ezra Miller choking a woman outside a bar in Reykjavik was a big shock for fans of their more whimsical performances. And then the day after Zack Snyder's Justice League was awarded the new Oscar patronization statuette for biggest cheer moment of all time, when The Flash entered the Speed Force, bear in mind that this was an of all time award and was actually up against The Matrix, Spider-Man No Way Home and Endgame, which by the way most of us heard actual cheers for in cinemas. And British audiences do not cheer anything. We barely laugh at comedies, it's unseemly. Either way, I'm sure that will be what the Oscars 2022 are remembered for because nothing else of note happened. Ezra celebrated their historical cinematic immortality born of a coordinated online voting campaign by Snyder fans, who by now are well-practiced at this sort of thing, by attacking a Hawaiian couple whose hostel they were staying in. They stole the couple's wallets, passports, and threatened to kill them. I will bury you and your slut wife. 
Fine quote. The couple have since dropped the restraining order, and I hope Warner Brothers give them the budget they were saving up for Flash 2 in 2030. So obviously I was thrilled to watch Ezra Miller play the tragic lost character of Credence Leonor Gielgud in this third film. Since 2016, they have only played Credence and Barry Allen on eight separate occasions. That's it. Credence and Flash. That's it. This is their career now, being the damage that Warner Brothers has to pay for. Like if Venom's your drunk uncle who makes everything about him, Ezra Miller's your wayward kid that's constantly getting into trouble that you have to bail them out for. Yeah. This, by the way, folks, is uh, why you should always have fictional heroes rather than real-world ones. <clears throat> now let's talk about the positioning of these Fantastic Beasts films as prequels rather than follow-ups to the events in Harry Potter. I recently posted my disdain for the upcoming Game of Thrones TV prequel series about the Targaryens and their renowned disastrous dynasty. I cited Caprica, the dismal and short-lived prequel follow-up to Battlestar Galactica, as exemplary of this. The story was over. How it began is already known. What purpose do they serve aside from generating money for the studio based on recognizable IP? Same with Bates Motel and Hannibal, which I dropped out of early when it became immediately apparent that it was an exotic kill of the week show with the customary fixation on apparently fascinating, actually very dull, serial killers. Even the always elegant Mads Mikkelsen with his permanent smirking, I know something you don't know, expression couldn't keep me engaged. I rarely am with prequels because rather than pushing forward to new developments, they are spinning out, visibly grasping at the original audience to feed them chunks of newly made stuff, filibustering more than even regular TV shows do. Just delaying that moment until we meet up with where we know. One of our longtime listeners with admirable optimism suggested that the highly rated Hannibal and Better Call Saul indicated that prequels weren't necessarily automatically a bad thing. And I will admit, I have an extra axe to grind in this particular argument as an author who has written 13 books in the space of time it has taken George R. R. Martin to not write one book, thus leaving Game of Thrones in the care of two idiotic showrunners who were entirely reliant on shock value as the only means of subverting predictable narrative, and they had no follow-up. And you could tell me that George R. R. Martin does have follow-up, I'll believe it when I see it. But either way, I can get quite ferocious when citing precedent when my blood is up and it's late at night and I'm just tapping stuff out. And though I definitely did not want to state that this listener was categorically wrong, I did want to point out that good prequels are the exception, not the rule. The Planet of the Apes trilogy began as speculative prequel, or a speculative prequel to the Charlton Heston original, and they quickly became by far the best three films in a series of nine. Some reboots, like Batman Begins and Casino Royale, offer us an origin story for a scenario that we're already very familiar with, but exist in different continuity to what happened in the past, leading one of my co-workers to confusion when she thought that Jack Nicholson definitely killed Bruce Wayne's parents. She was very perturbed at Batman Begins when Joe Chill turned up. So that night, I cracked my knuckles on the, uh, well, they're not all bad, and tapped out 69 examples of prequels that were either a bad idea, worse than what had come before, maybe even quite good, but definitely not as celebrated as what came before. So when you hear them on the list, you're gonna go, oh, I like that one. It's, I know you like it, it's just not as good as what came before. 
or in most cases, just a shameless cash grab. I will read the Sorry 69 now. Okay, number one, the most obvious, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, then Star Wars Attack of the Clones, Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, Star Wars The Clone Wars movie, specifically. You can say you like The Clone Wars TV show, that's fine. I'd say solo, but people keep saying how much they like it, even though it made barely any money and to me isn't good at all. Ditto the unexpectedly popular Rogue One, which so many people were like, this is my favourite Star Wars film ever, and I'm like, why? Then The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, and The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug. I personally like both of these, but the prevailing response is that they are a shadow of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And then there's The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, which I definitely did not like, and Rings of Power needs to be phenomenal to get them out of this hole. X-Men Origins Wolverine, X-Men Apocalypse, X-Men Dark Phoenix, and you could argue about alternate timelines here, but as far as audiences go and as far as studios go, they're prequels. You could also cite new Star Trek, but those to me are three good films, beyond the one which received the least flack from fans being the weakest, so clearly this is a subjective list, but there's some unarguable stinkers coming up. Number 11, Leprechaun Origins. Told you. Then Alien vs Predator, which again I kind of like, but it is rubbish all the same. Then Aliens vs Predators Requiems, then Prometheus, then Alien Covenant, then The Thing, that's the 2011 prequel to the 1982 remake of The Thing from Another World, also called The Thing. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, those folks that prefer this to Raiders of the Lost Ark are utterly balmy. We proved it on a balmyometer, and for that matter, the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Oz the Great and Powerful, we still don't have a movie of Wicked. That's how bad this was. Dumb and Dumberer, when Harry met Lloyd. Some questions do not need to be answered. Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. Van Wilder Freshman Year. Ace Ventura Junior Pet Detective, which asked the question, what if Ace Ventura was a disgusting shit boy instead of a disgusting shit man? The Cloverfield Paradox. It was unclear whether this was a prequel, sequel, midquel, alternate reality thing. Butch and Sundance, The Early Years. Is that a real thing? Yeah. I, I believe it's called The Early Days, not The Early Years. Uh, the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas. The first film was awful. This one tried its best to be worse. Kermit's Swamp Years. Pan. That's the one... Remember that one? No, you don't remember that one. Pan, the Peter Pan origin story. Snow White and the Huntsman, Winter's War. That's only a smidgen worse than the original Snow White and the Huntsman, and it's a prequel, so it counts. Dracula Untold. Cube Zero. Red Dragon. That's a re-adaptation of the same book that Michael Mann's Manhunter was based on. Brett Ratner's version is infinitely worse. Hannibal Rising, the now-forgotten story of Hannibal the Boy Cannibal. 300 colon Rise of an Empire, Carlito's Way, Rise to Power, Underworld, Rise of the Lycans. Stop rising! Stay down! <laughs> Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist, and Exorcist the Beginning. It is tough to have two directors make two completely different prequels from the same ingredients and have them both be bad, but they managed it somehow. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre The Beginning, notably this series of nine, comprises of only bad sequels, prequels, reboots and remakes, and one excellent original. Missing in Action 2, The Beginning. Cruel Intentions 2, The Beginning. Tarzan 2, which is actually a prequel. 
The Fox and Hound 2, which is actually a prequel. Smoking Aces 2, which is actually a prequel. Amityville 2 The Possession, which is actually a prequel. The Scorpion King 2 Rise of a Warrior, which is actually a prequel. Paranormal Activity 2, Paranormal Activity 3, From Dust Till Dawn 3 The Hangman's Daughter, Cabin Fever 3 Patient Zero. Sharon hated Eli Roth's Cabin Fever more than anything, so it's actually feasible that watching Cabin Fever 3 you'd be like, this ain't so bad. It's less cruel directly to women. Okay. Maybe. I don't know, it might be. I, I doubt very much that anything... It couldn't be worse. Cabin Fever could be decent. Tremors 4 The Legend Begins, Psycho 4 The Beginning, Casper A Spirited Beginning, The Dukes of Hazard The Beginning, The Little Mermaid Ariel's Beginning, Ginger Snaps Back The Beginning, Annabelle, Annabelle Creation, The Nun, Insidious 3, Minions, Marley and Me The Puppy Years, I am not joking folks, the dog dies, but here he is as a puppy, you sick, sick little monkeys. Monsters University, ugh. Oh. You know what kids love? Frat house comedies. Puss in Boots. <laughs> Smash that egg. Zulu Dawn. The Beginning Rises. Actually, I think I might have made that one up. I was just about to say, what the hell is that? A sequel stroke prequel to. I made this other one up as well. My Girl Begins. <laughs> it was a response to Marley and Me. Begins. And finally, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, and Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. Dumbledore! Dare to be stupid! Yes! Why don't you dare to be stupid? It's so easy! So easy to stupid! We're all waiting for you! Dare to be stupid! It is hard to gauge the critical and audience responses on this one. If you look on YouTube, the thumbnails alternate between I liked it and it's awful. So my remit with this show is to examine the production in a more meta sense, beyond just being a lukewarm romp, which is what it is. Even if you liked it, this is not a blisteringly compelling epic with peaks of comedy, tragedy and suspense, like it may have been before. If anything, the whole thing feels like a lengthy and too late course correction from film two, undoing and undermining much of what happened in that regrettable mess. But if you notice that film two spent much of its runtime seemingly undoing and undermining aspects of film one, so for example, Jacob suddenly remembers, and at the same time he's also being gaslit, the trilogy becomes a staggered, uneven, uncomfortable, estranged story chasing its own tail, unsure of what it wants to be or even what it doesn't want to be. It is an attempt at a saving throw by the studio. 50 minutes of underwritten characters meeting in rooms and explaining what happened in the last film, which substantially fewer people saw, followed by an hour and a half of the underwritten rest of this non-story. They even have the temerity to lampshade the fact that this series is confusing and convoluted and often contradictory by expressing that if they have multiple chaotically organized plans in motion at the same time, the Dark Lord won't know what's going on and neither will the dwindling audience. I at shouldn't think too much about it if I were you, and that goes for you as well. I, I can understand if they made that a joke, but it honestly feels like they're going, um, it's supposed to be confusing, so that anyone who says it's confusing can have people shout that at them. But I wasn't confused, I actually knew what the fuck was going on the whole time. I just felt like we didn't need this, 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 or this. For perspective, Deathly Hallows 2 drew in $1.3 billion worth of bums on seats, and I would guess a lot of that was returning audiences, because that's what makes a success into a mega hit. 
Five years later, Fantastic Beasts 1 made 814 million, which should be considered healthy. But a $500 million drop-off, half a billion dollars, is indicative of tapering interest and unwillingness to re-enter this saga that was perceived as completed. Mark my words, when The Simpsons is finally done and they make a kind of a spin-off and they call it Springfield, it will not be the thing that everyone turns up for. Even if it's the same literal show. They just can't have The Simpsons family because one of the key members has finally passed away and I dread that day. Even though I don't enjoy the current Simpsons, I don't want any of them to, to pass away. I want them to retire and live happy rest of their lives. On a farm. Romping for joy with Santa's little helpers, many voice actors. Crimes of Grindelwald made $655 million two years later. So that's a drop-off of another, like, approaching $200 million. The lowest of any Potter film. The nearest and lowest was Azkaban before that. And after that, each subsequent Potter sequel made more each time. So it went up and up for films one and two. Down with Azkaban because... Down with Azkaban! Because it wasn't a Christmas release, or maybe people were kind of done with Harry Potter for a bit. But then they were like, oh, Azkaban's really good. It still did really well. It did, it did very healthy. But there's a difference between doing really well and a phenomenon. Yeah. I, I think part of it may have been a certain section of the audience not really realising that there was more. The first two feel very much like a pair. Yeah. Fantastic Beasts, unless this third one picks up, it did not pick up. Might well make less each time. Crimes of Grindelwald also ranks the lowest in terms of critical appraisal, wallowing at 36% freshness, which feels accurate. One in three people liked it still seems high. Mm with Hallows 2 hitting a high of 96%. That means almost every critic liked the last Harry Potter film. And that was only two films earlier. Secrets of Dumbledore currently sits at a very middling 55%, the next one up being Fantastic Beasts 1 at 74%. But notably, I think our originally our favourite, uh, Deathly Hallows 1, the critics were like, why you cut this film in half? Like, they, they, they scored it low, and it got 77%, because it felt like an incomplete story. And then somehow it all felt complete again by film eight. I'm not sure whether it's still our favourite. I don't even think I have any favourites anymore in this particular regard. I have mixed feelings, as you'll hear. Now, as you just heard, the vast majority of prequels are bad because they approach a completed story with a smell of desperation, artificially extending the parameters back into the past whilst trying to convince us that the area we are looking at is less predictable and set in stone than it clearly is. Kind of like the way that cooking shows and healthy eating shows try to convince you that Cooking from scratch isn't an incredible amount of pots and pans and washing up and preparation that just covers the entire house. They just... <clears throat> it is when anyone cooks from I scratch. I wash up as I go along. Okay. <laughs> just before I tapped out those 69 quickfires off the top of my head that other night, the optimistic listener cited The Dark Crystal, the Netflix show, as a great example of a prequel that can work well and be just as good, if not better, than the original. And they are absolutely right, that is the case with Dark Crystal. But Game of Thrones and the Wizarding World have established histories known to fans in a way that The Dark Crystal was always vague about, and more mysterious as a result. Also, 
The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance launched in 2019, nearly 40 years after the lone movie in 1982, which did not do gangbusters at the time, developed kind of a cult following, but like it's, it wasn't a legitimate phenomenon, the way that Harry Potter and Game of Thrones are. Um, and also, that Dark Crystal got cancelled after season one, so it almost doesn't matter that it was really good. The first Fantastic Beasts emerged a mere five years after Deathly Hallows Part 2, and it reeked of Warner Brothers refusing to allow this lucrative money spinner of a world to rest for a while. It's just a little finished, it's still good, it's still good, and this Game of Thrones prequel series, House of the Dragon, is set for release this August, which is only a scant three years after the crushing disappointment of that Game of Thrones finale. You might also note, folks, that the reason a lot of people really didn't like the end of Game of Thrones was Daenerys went from being this beacon of potential hope with a hard edge to being a Nazi woman who went around in Hitler gear on her dragon, flamethrowering innocent people and civilians. And people didn't like that because it just wasn't what they wanted. So a series all about exactly that and why the Targaryens were mad as brushes might not scratch that itch for them. So what you're saying is that their conclusion was best not give women power, they'll burn everybody. Well, yeah, that's important to do. We all know my feelings on that one. Yeah, Dark Phoenix. But we know how that bloodline ends two centuries later. It was described to us very vividly across the written page and in the show. The team in charge of turning George R. R. Martin's lazily scribbled notes into televisual gold are going to have to work overtime in order to give the audience new characters to care about. Fantastic Beasts had similar issues, but even more pitfalls regarding what is known to be true by the fan base. JK was forced to make up stuff that sounded carefully planned out, but clearly wasn't. Like, Nagini, the poor Korean woman who turns into a well-known murderous snake and then disapparates out of the prequel series, not appearing at all in this third film. She was sir not appearing in this film. And we'll never see her again. Looking up Newt Scamander on the Potter wiki, which isn't the same as Pottermore, back in 2016, I spotted in his factual notes that his wife was Porpentina Scamander. A logged fact that puts all question of them not getting together in the trash thus making Tina's anger at Newt over a poorly worded newspaper article about his brother's engagement a dreadful disservice to a character who should by rights have been more shrewd and looked into the specifics of the upcoming nuptials. Like if you heard Scamander's getting married you'd be like whoa whoa which one Newt or Theseus because I see both of them there. That would be your first question. If JK was writing her as I don't even want to ask that question I'm just going to assume it's Newt and hope that I'm right and be really mad at him. Also, how poor is this journalist that they're going to be quite so vague in a newspaper article? Ah, Scamander is going to marry... He would say, Newt Scamander, and then have his age in brackets. Yeah. Well, we all know how well Joe writes journalists. Anyway, <clears throat> I can barely remember Tina in film two, and I found this positioning of her rather lovely character to be unreasonable, annoying, and thin. I credit the immensely talented Catherine Waterston with 85% of Tina's appeal, with the rest going to costumer Colleen Atwood, who really does well within the restrictions imposed on her to fill this world with grey, suited, boring white men. Did you hear about why it's possible she got downplayed? Did she say, I don't want to work for that bitch? 
Uh, no, but she did call her out on social media and sent her an article about that sort of contradicted a lot of the things that Joe was saying. You'll see what I'll do. I'll write you out a fantastic beast. Go then. Do it. She said she wanted to make sure she wasn't being associated with certain opinions that were held by people she was working with. Good for her. Oh, uh, also credit to James Newton Howard, who has a very specific theme that goes with Newton Tino and just played on the piano. It's lovely. And I, I liked them together. And Joe made absolutely sure that they weren't together for the next two movies. On the subject of clothing, by the way, if a newcomer who had never heard of Harry Potter were to watch the films in chronological order, that's order of when they take place, it would be quite jarring jumping from this reserved 1930s tailoring and often fabulous slinky dresses like Zelda Fitzgerald, clearly worn by adults who chose them themselves, and then to 70 years later in the 2000s for Philosopher's Stone where the wizards all dressed up like they're going to a Ren fair or are part of some weird cult that decided that jeans were the tools of Beelzebub, only to then loosen up over the following years as the kids graduate from gnome hats and galoshes to sneakers and hoodies. It's an inconsistency that doesn't ruin anything, but it does underline how the overall view of the wizarding world by its creators keeps shifting to match the ages of the core audience who are now in their 20s. Because if you follow it by movie release order, the kids go from wearing kids' clothes to teenager clothes to grown-up clothes. And the adults go from wearing, ooh, fun wizard clothes, to a bit more you-need-to-respect-me clothes, to now I am a grey-suited man standing in your way. Johnny Depp. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry, that's just a fedora atop a pile of greasy hair. Uh, apparently, actor Johnny Depp, sorry, that's just a trash bag full of scarves. Half a trillion. Let me put that in context. To lose other people that amount of money, Johnny Depp, would have had to start in the Lone Ranger over a hundred times a year for 25 years. That's a horrifying amount. Horrifying. Several of the videos decrying Beasts 3 The Beastening actively put in their thumbnail or title that the film is bad because <clears throat> Warner Brothers released Johnny Depp from his contract. As though that was the pillar of salt holding this whole lamentable saga aloft. Now, if you're still an avowed aficionado of Johnny Depp, if you're a Depp head, that's fine. But if you're leading with him in your critique, if you're making his absence the focus of your video, I am just going to have to suspect that being vicariously outraged on behalf of Johnny Depp, whose net worth is $200 million, by the way, losing paid work, and having his spotless reputation tarnished also plays into the mass-scale demonizing of Amber Heard, positioning her as exemplary of women lying about domestic abuse in order to call the testimonials of women everywhere, past, present and future, into question. And if some well-meaning Depp fans missing that camera-hogging little piss weasel get caught in my suppositional crossfire, then I apologize. That's another thing that I don't think is helping them at the moment. They're back in court. So, the... I mean, this is... They're back in court literally very recently, but my guess is, knowing that was coming up, Warner Brothers would be very hesitant to be encouraging people to go back and watch two. <laughs> which would get people on board to watch three under normal circumstances. And would negate the need to re-explain two for the whole of Act One. Yeah. I mean, characters literally come into a room and say, you're Newt Scamander, you did this, this and this, and then this happened. And he's like, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> it's like this isn't even dialogue. Nobody was excited for this movie. Ah, to me, Johnny Depp's presence was one of the most distasteful and uninspiring in the second film. His sudden unexpected appearance, face-offing Colin Farrell at the end of the first film, elicited active groans from my audience at that point. That was the last late-night screening I ever went to. And Mads Mikkelsen does a much better job at conveying a charismatic leader. The problem is his I know something you don't know, smirk, doesn't make it seem like he could sway a population who weren't already into the idea of cruelty for power and power through cruelty. The shonky Trump parallel with his wispy bleach blonde mop of hair back in film two never felt like it landed, but Mickelson has a sinister, malevolent and downright evil air about him. I'm sure he's a lovely guy in real life. I've never heard anything bad about him. Um, but he just looks like pure evil. And it exceeds both the obvious self-obsession of the Orange Bridge troll and that of Grindelwald's unwisely chosen real-world parallel World War enthusiast Adolf Hitler. And unfortunately, the core plot of Beasts 3 revolves around a three-way election. It's originally two-way, but then it becomes a three-party system like we're all used to that Grundlewald gate crashes after having his crimes hand-waved away, much like the attempt to dismiss every beat of the Crimes of Grindelwald movie. The key to this election, and this is absolutely true, I haven't told you this yet, is a magic baby deer. A tiny little fawn-like creature called a quillin. Q-I-L-I-N. Quillin. Killin. Newt, at the beginning, is looking for a mother Quillin about to give birth, but then Credence turns up with a bunch of Grindelwald's manifestly evil followers and shoots the mum, dead, and snatches the baby, teleporting away. Well, now we know who killed Bambi's mum. We do. It was Credence what done it. Grindelwald is pleased and slits the throat of the baby dear. I've got kids here. Sl oh my god! Slits the throat of the baby deer as Queenie, the lovely Jewish telepath who joined this entirely obviously evil man, watches him from the sidelines do some scrying in the fawn blood on his driveway as it spills out. He sort of, he sees Dumbledore in the blood. And Queenie begins to suspect now that his policy on enslaving all non-magical people might not help her to marry her muggle paramour Jacob, whom she was gaslighting and memory wiping before joining the wizard Nazi party. That second film's terrible, folks. And when you have to read the above passage aloud, you start to wonder why Warner Brothers spent $200 million on this film rather than just taking the wizarding world out back and spending less than a dollar to shoot it in the head. But it gets better or worse depending on your perspective and sensibilities. Grindelwald uses necromancy to resurrect this throat-slitted baby deer. <sighs> he pet cemeteries this thing. Because as it transpires, the deciding vote will be cast by Bambi here. As Quillen are incredibly special unicorn-type creatures who can perceive a person's purity and goodness or their utter baby deer slaughtering evil. He has effectively hacked a form. He's jailbroken it so that it does what he wants it to do. Sharon's doing... 
so much of this film is all about this concept. Flames on, on the, the side, side of my face. face. I, I was keeping That's some- That's not an election! I know, I know! I'm getting to that. <laughs> <sighs> Grindelwald's plan is to get zombie Bambi to eye him up and down in front of the Wizard United Nations as he stands next to the two other candidates and proclaim the guy who makes Steve Bannon look like the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt to be an entirely rad dude. That's this film. Grindelwald executing this plan and the goodies trying to stymie him. There is yet another irony in this rotten scumbag putting forth something that used to be pure and kind and is now a dead ghoulish hell beast and trying to convince the world that it is still good. Um, I don't know if they even know this, but there is something very significant about doing this to a creature that at least superficially resembles a deer. Mm-hmm. Because who is a deer? Lily Potter? Yes. Mm. And everything that was good and honourable about the original series was about Lily Potter's love for her child. Mm -hmm. I feel like if you told jo JK the first bit, they, she would go, um, yes, yes, I meant that entirely. And then if you told her the second bit, she'd go, no. And she'd probably have you killed. As it transpires, there was a second Quillen who survived the murder of his mother and the kidnapping of his brother. We will call this second Quillen Timmy the Quillen because he never gets a name. Viewers of the second film might faintly remember the character of Bunty. Remember Bunty? Mm. The lady who looks after Newt's zoo of lethal, lethal Pokemon while he's away and is clearly infatuated with him. Her job is to get Newt's suitcase copied half a dozen times so that the goodies can pull a Thomas Crown affair for act three. That's the whole of act three, them wandering around with suitcases. And you've already been told the whole of Act 1. Just exposition. If you've seen the second movie, you know Act 1. But because we are shown this and their plan earlier, the tension doesn't come from wondering what they're going to do and going, oh, cool, they made a bunch of different suitcases. It becomes simply a, wait, while the ones who have suitcases that clearly do not contain Timmy get into fights until the real Timmy is inevitably revealed. Why is Timmy in a suitcase? That's what I asked, but they didn't answer me. And I eventually was told, sir, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> this all takes place in a Tibetan village at the top of a mountain, which is very nice to look at. On a side note, Bunty is a decent Samwise Gamgee kind of supporting character for Newt, who knows that he doesn't love her in that way and is clearly pining he is for both the dead Lita Lestrange and the alive Porpentina Goldstein. Bunty is perfectly positioned in the movie for a spite-filled revenge murder by Grindelwald for directly being the one to eventually foil his plan and stand defiantly in front of him. But that didn't happen. This move might have made the film more bittersweet, ending closer to Hallows 1, but so many characters either were killed or turned coat in the last film uh, that it seemed like a rewrite kept Bunty alive. You know, I'm not like, why didn't you kill Bunty? I'm just like, if you'd done that, it would have been dark side tactics, but people would have felt sad at the end of the movie, and feeling sad because a character's died might have sold you some tickets. Everyone go, I mourn Bunty now. It's just that Bunty never got the chance to be Dobby. No. No one cares! Yeah, people don't write Bunty fanfic. Well, they might. 
I'm sure there's been Bunting fanfic out there. The other goodies on the good team include Lita Lestrange's Glass of Tap Water husband Theseus. That's Newt's brother. He does nothing much aside from being kidnapped and placed in a labyrinthine dungeon with a giant scorpion and a bunch of crab people inside it. Newt, <laughs> Newt rescues him super easily, barely an inconvenience. And that's a wrap on Theseus. That was him in this story. A new character seems to have replaced the almost entirely absent Porpentina. She never speaks with Newt, so we don't get any of that chemistry and potential relationship drama, but at least it's an actor of color in this overbearingly white world. Jessica Williams as Eulalie Hicks. Uh, this is the teacher who gave the girls in Booksmart a lift to the second party and goes, wouldn't it be funny if I came in? <laughs> Could you imagine? But maybe I should come in. She's, she's great, I love the actress. and. Uh, we first meet her trying to trick Jacob into coming out of his pastry store, though I can't remember exactly the reasons for bringing the entirely out of his depth non-magical user back into harm's way yet again. Like, we might actually manage to kill him this time. They give him a wand and he causes predictable chaos with it, but uh, back to Eulalie. She lures Jacob out to defend her by organizing a gang of thugs to get really creepy and frightening with her as she sits on a New York bench in full view of the bakery. The scene starts uncomfortably and gets worse as she laughs off their threats, reminding me of how JK wrote into her fiction that the real witches put to the stake during the Middle Ages cast spells on the fire so that it would only tickle their feet. This of course ignores the countless entirely non-magical women murdered by predatory men, so weirdly Eulalie's entrance would come off as privileged and naive even if it wasn't a piece of street theatre putting her in no actual danger. This drew my attention to the word muggle, used over and over and over in the books and films. It sounds like a slur, and the cultural variations introduced in Beasts 2, including the non-magique and the can't spells, just make it sound worse. But much as I like this actress, and much as I have been hoping for more Wizards of Color in the spotlight, she has an obnoxiously conceited attitude her character as written. It's not her fault, which I actually, which is actually exemplary of the wizarding community as written. They're smuggles. I've never heard anyone use that phrase before, but I am ironically rather smug about landing on it. Smuggles. They live among us, but they don't know what a car is. They constantly show off their powers, achieving with a flick of the wrist what it would take regular people a lot of work or repair or destructive power to achieve. There is little to no exchange of energy aside from certain very dark spells, like uh, Vada Kedavra takes a part of your soul. Um, in consequence, aside from study, they appear to give nothing for what they accomplish. So an athlete can train to run 100 meters in record time, but it wipes them out. Rowling's wizards would just teleport and feel fine. I think that like first time around, you'd feel sick, but you get used to it. But you know, that's just this not being magical realism or even uh, vaguely approaching magical realism. That's not really a problem, but it does affect how we perceive the wizards culturally in terms of what they could have done and what they didn't. The deeper offense, they have stood by while humankind who share their DNA fell to wars and diseases and famine and natural disasters and ruining the planet, all of which their hand-wavy powers could at the very least mitigate somewhat. This is even directly declared at the tail end of the last film. JK has trapped herself 
writing about an insular secret society who hide their gifts and stick to their own bloodlines in a decidedly eugenics-y way. This is why we said back in 2012 that we wanted to see this world pushed forward and out of this crappy era where house elves are happy to be an enslaved people, where covetous, untrustworthy, hook-nosed, money-hoarding goblins form a wealthy minority within a rich minority. But Fantastic Beasts doesn't move things forward. If anything, it has served to highlight just how horrifying these magical folk actually are in their beliefs and practices. Newt and Tina escape official execution at the Ministry by a hair in the first film. Every single magical person is given a multi-tool that is also a gun at the age of 12. They can wreck cities unnoticed. They can have, like, Dumbledore fights Credence in the middle of a street. It's like a fucking Superman versus Zod fight, and no one notices because they're using invisibility spells. And it's like, you could kill all kinds of people here, and I think someone's eventually gonna notice. They can brainwash urban populations, tamper with time itself, and their schools deliberately divide off an even quarter of their students into racist maniac house, leaving the kids alone in their dorms to opine about impure bloodlines and those too weak to seek power for seven years straight until they emerge ready for their Death Eater masks and to join the magical clan just in time for the next war started by them. This bothered me a decade ago, and now that JK's worldview has been splattered all over Twitter like pea green diarrhea, she just confuses me. One of the most egregious lines in the film is when the spokesworm of the Wizarding Confederacy absolves Grundle of all his past crimes, including murdering children, with his cult of dangerous supremacists because they don't have enough evidence to convict him. So he's just like, oh, hand wave, now he can run for... Like, not just he's a wanted criminal. Within the space of this, in the same breath, he proclaims that he can run for office now. He can rule us all now. Is he being, like, mind-controlled? It doesn't actually look like it by the end. He's just someone who's like, well, in his words, all voices have the right to be heard, even those we might find disagreeable. Every fallacy about freedom of speech seems to push a fascist sensibility, which is yet another goddamn irony, because the very concept was put in place to prevent tyrants from disappearing journalists who might dare to speak out against them. If you live in a nation where you won't be imprisoned or killed for what you say, freedom of speech is a luxury that is abused by those who actually don't want freedom of speech for everyone, only themselves. There is a fundamental difference between your voice being heard and your voice being listened to. And I am having difficulty remembering a single person in the past decade citing freedom of speech who had anything good to say. In the free nations, you have a right and a freedom to speak. But everyone else also has the right to say, fuck you, I'm not listening to this. Especially those people who would suffer directly as a result of what you're saying should happen. 
It means other people who potentially agree have the freedom to come and listen to you if they want to. It does not mean we must all hear out every crackpot who thinks they have a radical new idea, but it mostly boils down to the same old hyper-aggressive shit, invariably backed up by a prelapsarian suggestion that everything used to be good and that then cultural progress ruined that now we all have to watch what we say. Invariably, an already maligned group will also be blamed for this decline. That rings so very hollow in the only era in human history that has the goddamn internet, where unless you live in a super restrictive nation, you can pretty much say anything without consequences. Freedom of speech protects your literal physical freedom and your life. It does not protect you from being called a colossal asshole as a result of what you elect to say. Later in the film, Dumbledore laments that bigotry is spreading, and again, I am now just confused. Was that line from JK? Does JK not see her deliberate, sustained, and escalating demonization of a vulnerable, maligned group? broadcast to a huge crowd of her own followers who will brook no words said against the writer of the books that they have tied their identity to. Does she not see that as bigotry? In a film where she finally, blushingly alludes to a passionate gay relationship between Albus and Gellert, does she consider that gay men cannot change this fundamental aspect of themselves, but trans folk can? The answer is yes, that is exactly what she and her ignorant crowd cling to. The notion that gender assignment is an automatically binary process and a law of nature that should not be broken. Which, Which is, is a bit fucking rich coming from a wizard writer. By intersex people who are a medically recognised fact. But Warner Brothers know how to toe the line with the shifting goalposts of prejudice. All allusions to homosexuality were neatly trimmed from the Chinese release to appease their tyrannical government. And from memory, I believe that that would have cost the final cut about 57 seconds. That's how much these messages of acceptance matter. That evidence of humanizing non-hetero folk can be removed and leave the running time virtually unchanged. The actual events of the film are relatively slight. The blood pact is yet again a MacGuffin. This was a magical agreement that Albus would not directly oppose Gellert and vice versa, the consequences being, as it turns out, terrible pain, which makes Albus reprehensible for leaving this guy unopposed for years and years on end. He's like, yeah, but it, yeah, I don't want it to squeeze my wrist. You fucking kidding? It's weird, like, he gets the blood peg back, holds it in his hand, wraps this chain around his wrist, then starts thinking about opposing Grindelwald, and it constricts and hurts him. It's like, that's cool, bury it in concrete, then it can't squeeze you. Why are you holding this thing that hurts you in your hand? Put it down. And if there's something more complex to it, like he'd get squeezed anyway, it was not well represented visually on screen, because it's always this one bit of jewellery that's hurting him. Now, if you remember, this was objectified in... This little bit of jewellery containing their blood was objectified in the last film, the acquisition of which was the whole point of Newt's mission in that film. And he was successful, which upgraded Albus's certainty of facing down his former lover from a probably not to a maybe. That was the big, like, at the end of film two, it was like, now maybe I can oppose him. But as mentioned before, this prequel exists within the confines of known events. Albus did fight and defeat Grindelwald, claiming the Elder Wand. It was me who stole my dad's keys. 
it was a plot-bearing aspect of Deathly Hallows, the one that everybody saw. So the viewers are able to manually further upgrade that maybe to a definite yes, making any fuss made over the MacGuffin entirely pointless. Ostensibly, Albus is supposed to wait 13 more years of Grundle murdering people before he finally gets his shit together, but considering the decade time shift to accommodate the films, that might just be three years if it happens on screen at all. My current prediction is that it won't be at all interesting finding out what happens. Aberforth returns. Who could forget Aberforth? Everybody. Okay, so he was the guy who ran the Hogshead Inn in Hogsmeade, whom we see very briefly in The Prisoner of Azkaban, and who turned up in Hallows 2, now played by Kieran Hines. He's the one who's like, That's a boy's answer! You're lying! He's like a grumbledore. He's in this film grousing again about Albus's lifestyle. Like, he's eating soup and going, You, I, I heard everything that happened in this house. Everything. And it's like, Yeah, we get it. Cheers. And as it turns out, he accidentally, this is uh, Albus's brother, accidentally got a woman pregnant as a teenager, or another teenage girl pregnant. Hence, the big reveal that Credence was a Dumbledore. Everyone assumed he was Albus's son, maybe the missing third uh, Dumbledore brother. It in fact makes him Albus's nephew, and very much pissed off with being sent away on the Titanic, then switcherooed by accident, and eventually left with a crazy abusive woman in New York. Unfortunately, with Miller playing him all slumped shoulders and shifty, we need to talk about Kevin's school shooter eyes and long, straggly Severus Snape hair, it was impossible to muster feelings about his character. To me, he was a device, played by a dangerously unbalanced person as well as a horrendous ambassador for the queer community. The actual secrets of Dumbledore after all this teasing turn out to be things that fans already knew. He recounts the sad tale of how he and Gellert and Aberforth fought and that Ariana was killed, and we discussed this a decade ago on our show about the Deathly Hallows and the, uh, the extended section where we talked about Hogwarts history. But I guess now the general public who have received the memo and they're up to date on, on that particular side of things, that she's no longer just a mysterious girl in a, in a painting. Again, some fans have been angered by the inconsistency in details between logged history and recounted memories. But this is still the best dramatic part of the film. Jude Law really sells it, so I couldn't really muster irritation at inconsistency. To me, the world doesn't matter anymore. I'm just looking for any humanity in there that I can get. So this blood pact is circumvented in a hand-wavy fashion. Uh, Credence calls for a vote of no confidence in the most obviously evil man who ever lived. Grindelwald tries to kill him, Dumbledore gets in the way, and he's only trying to protect Credence. And somehow that's enough of a, that doesn't count, but it is, but no, but yeah, but no. And it doesn't kill Albus, but it does make the blood pact break. So now they can fight each other at some unknown date. Timmy is revealed and allowed to take a sniff of the Nazi necromancer and turn his nose up before nodding insistently towards the pure of heart Albus Dumbledore, suggesting that he should get the same job that Grumpy Grundle wanted in order to be full-on wizard Hitler, was what he was trying to be, and uh, if Dumbledore gets to be uh, the, the leader instead, then he uh, can help design new, uh, more progressive wizard policies? I don't know. He doesn't take the job, I'm sure he must end up as Minister of Magic at some point. Fuck it, I don't care. Unfortunately, the desperation to use 
a Fantastic Beast in this incredibly beastly series doesn't have a real-world analogue. Donald Trump literally boasted on camera that he just moves in and starts kissing any woman he wants to. He said he would grab them by the pussy. JK's Quillen plot revolves around voters being given an entirely truthful glimpse into the black hearts of those who have risen to positions of a votable supreme power and deciding against it. But Donald tattled on himself in the most grotesque way possible and just days later when people should have been united by outrage that this creep was even able to stand for presidency, he still won. The sad truth is that a worryingly high percentage of people admire cruel leaders. Not despite their cruelty, but because of it. JK has only tentative abilities to thread together analogous themes to deadly serious real-world matters, and that gets measurably worse the harder she tries. Ryan George's pitch meeting for this came out yesterday, after I'd finished the edit, but he did hit on one possible plot direction that I hadn't really noticed, and it revolves around why the hell is Jacob there? So then you know who this creature kneels in front of? You know who's pure of heart? I mean, if I had to guess, I'd say Jacob, right? Because then Grindelwald and all his followers would be confronted with the idea that a muggle can also be pure-hearted, and also I think Dumbledore was maybe hinting at this, right? Isn't that why he brought him on the team? Because he's a good guy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would have been pretty good, I guess. I have it kneeling in front of Dumbledore. What's the logic there? People like Dumbledore. Oh, that is true. A lot of brand recognition on the name Dumbledore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Dumbledore becomes this lead wizard or whatever? Well, actually, he's like, no, thank you, I don't want it. So then the baby deer kneels in front of this other candidate, Santo, so then she gets elected. Oh, is that a good thing? I guess. I mean, we're not really gonna explain who she is or what her deal is. Well, I'm sure she'll be fine. Yeah, maybe. So then Grindelwald is gonna attack Credence and Dumbledore's got a stop him. Oh, it's gonna be hard for him to do that with that whole blood pact thing. Actually, it's gonna be super easy. Barely an inconvenience. Oh, really? Yeah, see, because Dumbledore stepped in, that breaks the blood pact because of fate, and now they can fight again. Why does that break the blood pact? Magic. How does that make sense, though? It's magic. Okay. So then they have just the most desaturated fight. Very exciting. Yeah, but they don't really want to kill each other because they have this very deep, very easy to edit out for China love for each other. Very romantic, except for in the Chinese market. And so then Grindelwald kind of retreats and jumps off a wall. Where does he go? Into the sequel, if this makes money. I mean, it's the equivalent of taking a lie detector test on, like, during one of those, um, candidate debates. Morbo demands an answer to the following question. If you saw delicious candy in the hands of a small child, would you seize and consume it? Unthinkable. I wouldn't think of it. What about you, Mr. Nixon? I remind you, you are under a truthoscope. Uh, uh well, uh, uh, the question is, uh, is vague. You don't say what kind of candy, uh, whether anyone is watching, or, uh, <clears throat> At any rate, I certainly wouldn't harm the child. Throughout the film, Eddie Redmayne is quiet and subdued, even more so than his previous two appearances. Alison Sudol, who plays Queenie, is silent and super tense the whole time, having twigged that the clan aren't as decent as they promised this mind reader. It really seems like she's feeling guilty about hitching her wagon to this awful, awful person. 
and Queenie feels the same about Grindelwald. Dan Fogler remains the standout in the series, delivering every line and movement as Jacob with humility, humanity, and crumpled humour. Ultimately, this third film felt to me like the thing it was, rather than the thing I wanted it to be. And that is, it was a way for Warner Brothers to save face when it doesn't do brilliantly and call this a completed trilogy and move on, de-emphasizing the original plan to put out five films and distracting folks with whatever their next plan is. My additional guess is that we now know for sure that the problematic creator at the core of this is more trouble than they are worth. Remember soon after the Snyder Cut finally arrived and they, the boys got what they'd always demanded? Release the Snyder Cut! Hashtag release the Snyder Cut! Then it was... Hashtag restore the Snyderverse. We demand it. The boys were baying for his reinstatement as the father of a continuing Snyderverse. Warner Brothers again put out a very clear trailer celebrating Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, and Zack Snyder's Justice League, a nine-hour cinematic opus that they pronounced complete, sending a message to those that needed it spelling out, what you want so badly is costing us a lot of money. You have to be satisfied with this. It's done. The film ends with Jacob and Queenie getting married at his bakery, where they were reunited at the end of film one. Cinematic language tells me that's an end. Tina arrives and shyly greets Newt with no lengthy back and forth, paving the way for them to get married in future and conform to Pottermore Records. Credence is accepted by his formerly judgmental father and his body appears to be crumbling under the strain of the destructive force inside him. And now he's finally done something good and opposed Grindelwald, he goes off to die quietly so that his horrible actor can be relieved of duty on screen. Nobody dies. For the first time since Prisoner of Azkaban, there isn't much in the way of bittersweetness even. Queenie's mistake at the end of film two is reversed and forgiven, and Dumbledore watches proceedings quietly smiling before wandering off into the snow to fight Grindelwald at some point in the future. A point that is a matter of historical record on Pottermore, and in the wiki, and in the books, and in the films. We know the outcome. We don't need to see it. Nothing about what I saw was pitching for two more sequels, and I would not be at all surprised if JK was given a producer role in future, but told she needs to stay the hell back from whatever attempts will be made to reignite cultural interest in this IP. Warner Brothers as a business are not up in arms in defense of trans folk. They just know this is bad PR, and that she's acting like an unpredictable lunatic. It's one of those you don't talk so much moments. Ultimately, what I realized is that there is an essential incompatibility with what is being written for the same audience who began as children and are now adults. It was the youthful energy that drew us into this world. The wizarding community cannot stand up to the reasoning of adults. It made more sense when we were following kids who were uncovering secrets as the world got darker and more serious, as they lost and matured. The Beasts movies smash together Fluffy the Big Cerberus from Philosopher's Stone with the final solution atrocity upon civilization of Deathly Hallows in a way that few people are really comfortable with. If the wizarding world is to be redeemed, JK needs to step away because new blood, new energy, and new compassion is needed. 
But in the meantime, I think we could all do with a bit of a break. And I'll say again what I said on Twitter the day I got back from seeing that film. Instead of paying 10 bucks to go see it, instead donate that 10 bucks to the Black Trans Connection charity, and then just go watch Stardust on Netflix. It's lovely and magical, and we did a show on it. School of Movies is supported by Patreon. We are kept going by you lovely, kind folks at home. A massive thank you once again to all of you. And our $15 top tier sponsors get a shout out every episode. So thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Solgero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finn Barnicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tima Helaz Haryo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skeels Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And we'll leave you with the wonderful score from James Newton Howard from his work on the first film, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. I'm not going to hold this series and its creator against anyone who worked in the film, unless, of course, they backed her up. In which case, why Parsicus? I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out.